27, please. <clears throat> I think I'll just read this as a background. Psalm 127, except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of anxious toil. For so he giveth his beloved sleep. Lo, children are an heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. As arrows are in the hands of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. Happy is the man that has, hath his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but they shall speak with the enemies in the gate. Blessed is everyone that feareth the Lord, that walketh in his ways, and so on. For thou shalt eat the labor of thine hands, happy shalt thou be, and it shall be well with thee, shall be as a fruitful vine by the sides of thine house, thy children like olive plants round about the table. Behold, that thus shall the man be blessed that feareth the Lord. The Lord shall bless thee out of Zion, and thou shalt see the good of Jerusalem all thy days of thy life. Yea, thou shalt see thy children's children, and peace upon Israel. <clears throat> I'm almost hesitant to speak on a subject like this. Um, I just call this child training slash parent training. And I'm, yeah, I'm hesitant because... Like I told you, I made failures in the morning in, in husband-wife relationship. We've made failures, mistakes on raising our children. And we have several children that I wish I could make decisions for. And I've often wished that I could just bring all the children right back home again. <laughs> and just bring them all in and try again. But it's not that way. So I want you to know that it's not that we have... You know, and it's pretty difficult because maybe we ought to have the young, young unmarried men to tell us how to do it because I've, I've noticed that young people a lot of time have some really good ideals. Thank you. And uh, you, maybe, was it that way for you too when we were young and we, we knew how to raise children? We'd see somebody, a little child cutting up, boy, if that was mine, I'd know what to do with it. And then when we get children, we find out that it is a little different than we thought. And when... When you're young and when you have children around you, you're like, I'm in the middle of it. I need somebody to help me. And when you get to my age, you're like, I've made mistakes. So who's going to talk about it? But I'm going to, I hope that I can at least share with you some things that I think we've learned. And I hope that it can be an encouragement to you with little children by you. I hope that you can be inspired with this. It's a very practical message. You may not agree on every point. But I believe that we should be united in our goal. Think about the little child that's beside you. Add 15 years quickly. What do you want? What do you want that child to be? How do you think it's going to get there? Will it be an accident? Can the school do it? Can the church do it? I want to tell you, it's going to take a threefold cord. We need families, we need churches, and we need schools. It's going to be a united effort, I believe. Psalm 58, verse 3 says, They go astray as soon as they are born. 
Our responsibility is to turn these children around. They're not born into this world as angels, and we know that. Nobody has to teach them to kick, scream, and holler, and fight, and pretty soon they, they're saying, mine, I had it first, and all these things. Nobody had to teach them those things. But it's our responsibility to turn them around. Children are born with a complete focus on themselves, selfishness. You ever hear a baby that, you know, is a week old and had been a fussy little baby, and one night the baby thinks, oh, I'm going to give mom a break tonight. I'm going to be quiet tonight so mom can get a rest. No. It's the way babies are born, only thinking about themselves. And somewhere along the line, we as parents have to take them and, and get them to think about somebody else. The son didn't come up for that little precious baby just for that one. And somehow to get our thought, to get the child to where they can think about others. These are eternal souls that did not ask to be born that were given into our care. Oh, dads, take time. Don't be passive. Don't be deadbeat dads. You know, Brother Philip talked about Abram. Or was he Abraham by then? I forget. Anyway, he was in the tent door. You know where the very next chapter, you know where Lot was? He was in the gate of the city. He was a big, I guess he was a politician. And God said, Abram, I know, I know you. I know you'll teach your children. And you know what happened? The, the vast, the vast different. Deadbeat dads find reasons to leave the house. Dads that have a passion for teaching and training the children try to find ways to get home a little quicker and to take the children with them when he can. Dads take time and notice. They need to know that they're special. Build relationships with them. They should be happy when you come home. They should want to be with you. It should be a big thing when they can go with dad. Children should love their dads. I don't know, I'm hard on dads, I guess, because I'm one, and I, I, I think somehow that dads that we're supposed to be the leaders in the home. Am, am I right on that? <laughs> And so I'm a little extra hard on dads, I think. I love the testimony of our little three-year-old grandson. He's a lot older than that now, but the story's still sweet to me. One day he had spent time with his dad and out on, I don't know what all they were doing, but at the end of the day when his dad was ready to put him to bed, he said, Dad, I'll love you forever, even when you're down in the ground. You see the bond that was being made there? Dads, moms, keep your children's heart because if you don't, somebody else will get it. Love your children. <clears throat> commit, mom and dad commit to working together to train the children. Judges 13, the angel came to Manoah and Manoah said, how shall we train the child? That's what he asked. How shall we train the child? And that should be in your hearts, moms and dads, when that baby is still in the womb of the mother. There should be that heart there. How shall we train the child? 
There's some scripture verses. I'm going to just read them. If you're taking notes, you can jot down the verses. Proverbs, he who spares his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him promptly. It's what the ESV calls it. Old King James, I think, says betimes, and it always sounds like bedtime. And he who loves him disciplines him promptly is what he's saying. Proverbs 22:15 says, Foolishness is bound up in the heart of the child. The rod of correction will drive it far from him. And our culture has gone so far from these principles, we're, we're almost in a, I don't know, I've heard it called a candy culture, and you get rewarded for everything and, and, um, and give candy if they've done good. And I'm, some rewards are a reward, rewards are good. I'm not going to knock that completely out. But don't try to do that and replace, replace the discipline what God's word says train a child. Because remember, foolishness is bound there. And the rod of correction drive it far from him. <clears throat> Proverbs 23, 13 and 14. <clears throat> do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with the rod, he will not die. If you strike him with the rod, you will save his soul from hell. Now, I want to say this because I want you to know, and if anyone else ever listens to this message, I want you to know that I'm not promoting some tool to beat the child that makes bruises and injuries, not at all. This is talking about the rod. What the Bible is talking about is an instrument of correction. And there are good instruments of corrections, and it is far different than stories I've heard and some things I've seen. I seen. I remember in time in in Honduras, we were walking out through the village, <clears throat> and there was a big commotion coming out of the house along the street, and a. Big Dad was chasing a little boy, maybe seven years old, and the little boy was hollering all he could and running as fast as he could, and Dad down behind him with a belt, trying to get up close enough to, to crack him. This is not the discipline that we're talking about. That is abuse. Discipline, godly discipline is a far cry so much different than abuse, and I want to explain that later. But if you discipline him, he won't die. But it does need to be pain there. You strike him with the rod, you will save his soul from hell. Proverbs 29, 15. The rod and rebuke give wisdom, but a child left himself brings shame to his mother. This is much more than intellectual training that does not change behavior. These verses that I read are not in harmony at all with Postmodern psychological parenting. I don't know if you've done much reading or you know what I'm talking about, but that's, we could just shorten it to PPP. Postmodern psychological parenting. And well, I think there's been a shift. I remember when I was a youngster, we would hear of here and there, we would hear of homes where the dad was abusive and beating the children, being hard on them, being ugly. And I don't condone that not for one minute. I think there's been a shift. I wouldn't know of any family that operates like that today. And that's a, that's a good thing. But what have we been influenced by? 
I think we've been influenced by this postmodern psychological parenting probably more than what we should be. I think it was Simon Schrock says that the winds that blow in society usually move the curtains in the church. Remember reading that in his book? And I think that's what, that's what has happened. And this modern way of raising children came along about the time, and I, I feel like I, I almost have to give a little bit of a background here, and I, I'm sensitive to the time, so, but I'll quit talking about that and keep moving. This came along about the time that modern man invented ways for birth control, which usually at the bottom of the list of reasons for not wanting children is selfishness. Now take that how I mean it. The term birth control was popularized about a hundred years ago. Margaret Sanger was a women's activist and she was, you can go read her history now, and she was an American birth control activist. She was in with the women's lib. Did you know, folks, that it was only 100 years ago that the women in this country could vote? Now they can run for president, right? <laughs> but she was an activist, and that was her goal in life, and she thought that women should be able to have babies just when they wanted to have a baby. So about in 1910, by the way, she opened the first birth control clinic in the United States in 1916, and she was jailed for distributing information on contraception. Can you believe that? <laughs> there was a woman officer, did one of those stings, came to her and and bought some information from her, turned around and arrested her. Well, in 1951, she met with an endocrinologist, Gregory Pincus, to encourage him to, to develop a pill that would prevent childbirth. They needed one more thing. They had the activists and the doctor, they needed one more thing. What is it? <laughs> Money. They found Catherine McCormick. Catherine McCormick was heir to the McCormick Harvester fortune from Chicago, and she had the money. And so they got together and gave $40,000 for the project. And we all know $40,000 in 1951 was a lot different than $40,000 today. They couldn't do tests in the United States because it was against the law. So they went to Puerto Rico because there was no laws um, against it there. Uh, but side effects were ignored. By 1960, FDA approved it in this country. And I'm just fast forward. By 2010, there were 1,100 lawsuits against the Bayer Corporation for health issues caused by the pill. Why am I saying all this? I'm saying this because the church has been painfully silent on it. I'm not trying to say any talk in any kind of language that your child or you can't read in the Bible. The Bible is, is plain on plain life and plain living, and I believe that we should be too. I remember as a youngster, one day one of my friends said, he was in the barber shop, and the barber asked him, what does y'all's church believe about birth control? And see, this was back when it was just all coming in. And he was like, I don't know. 
I didn't know. We kept hearing that the Catholics don't believe in it. I want to just be very clear. While we have been silent on it, and, and I think especially back in that era, I want to drive a point home today that you remember that life begins at conception, period. And anything that destroys life is wrong, is abortion. Right about this time when this was birth control was coming in was a time that hadn't been long since penicillin antibiotics came along to cure the dreaded diseases of loose living. I remember men talking about the, um, the fears they had of getting the venereal diseases. But antibiotics came along to cure that. A pill came along so they would do away with the consequences and man could pursue the pleasure of sin without the responsibilities and the morality rapidly went down. Same time, prayer and Bible reading were taken out of school. I was in, um, Gail and I went to public school in Hepzibah. And we, we started the day in those lower grades with Bible reading and prayer in public school. But in 1962 and 63, the Supreme Court ruled out the Bible and prayer in those years. It took a number of years later until it got all the way down in the, in the Bible Belt. At the same time was the hippie movement. It was when you see all that psychedelic stuff on the train cars and anywhere else they could get it. And it was all about free love. At that period of time, it was difficult for a man and a woman to get a divorce. You had to prove that your partner was bad. And it could get really gruesome in court because you had to prove that they were really bad. And so sometimes it wasn't worth it. And so they just lived together, just didn't get the divorce. There was a couple states that it was a lot easier. And they said actually people in Nevada, I think, was one of them. And travel wasn't like it is today where you just jump on an airplane and go. They said there were actually people, couples, that would get in the car and ride across the country to Nevada to get an easy divorce so they could come back and be divorced. I, I, that's kind of more than I can imagine, you know, riding out all across the country and she's sitting there looking out the window and say, boy, I'm glad when I get out there we can get, I just can't imagine a ride like that. It was in 1970, California was the first state to pass the no-fault divorce law. In other words, if you want a divorce, you could get it. 1970. And, and see, this, all stuff, this stuff is all real to me because in 1970, I was 15 years old. And, well, and just for interest, people who like history and keep up a little bit with the news, Ronald Reagan was the governor of California when that happened. And when he was, what do you say, elected president, I almost said ordained president. When he was elected president in 1980, I remember a Baptist friend telling me, I don't know if, I don't know if he should be the president because he's divorced. He's the first president ever that was divorced in this country. You see where we were at? And since then, of course, what? And by 2015, the same-sex marriages were legalized countrywide. 
Children today basically unwanted in society and seen as a burden. China and Japan years ago decided they would limit tightly the number of children and today they realized it, they realized it was a mistake and today both of those countries are giving incentives to have more children. But you know what they say? They're telling us that most of the girl, girls, women of childbearing age, we don't want more children. Forget the incentive. And their, their population decreasing in the workforce, they don't know what they're going to do down. And I'll tell you, whenever you go away from God's way, it's a one-way street, and it's the wrong way. <clears throat> now, our goal is to have well-balanced, emotionally stable, mature adults, Christians. That's, that's our goal, isn't it? So how will we get there? What will it take? I would like to suggest four things. Sometimes if I have a board, I draw it on, but it's okay. You think about it, you, um, rail cars. And I'd like to imagine there's four of them up here. And the one is love, the one is teaching, the one is training, and the one is discipline. And you can't just take one of them and get your job done. They need to be all coupled together where you have love, teaching, training, and discipline all going together. Proverbs 13, 24, he who spares his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him promptly. And this postmodern psychological parenting has a wrong concept of love. And we talked about the wrong concept in the marriage. They have it in children too. And the one, one wrong concept they have is that it's your duty to constantly try to make your children happy. Is that your responsibility? That you're just there to everything to make them happy? I believe now if you take God's way, they will be happy children. But if your goal is straight, let's go make them happy, you know what's going to happen? Sometimes we parents aren't quite smart enough to figure out what that little selfish brat wants. And so, do you want water? No. Do you want milk? No. Do you want Cheerios? No. And you keep going around and around, and hopefully one, one time you'll hit bingo, and they'll say, yes, and be happy the rest of the day. Does it happen? No. It doesn't happen. I'm going to tell you, parents, <clears throat> You be the leader to your child. You are wise and mature enough to know what the child needs. You might not know what they want, but you know what they need. When that child's big enough to come to the table and sit there, it's time for what? It's time to eat. And you know that child, if it sits there and he doesn't want to eat, you know good and well that in about an hour, they're going to want to eat. And here we go again. Well, what do you want? So when it's time to eat, happy is the, the home where I was blessed just recently to stop by a home and every time. And I went in. They're around the table and everybody, even down to the little tight in the high chair, they were they were just eating, having a good time. And I've been in other homes where it's just chaos. But what I'm saying, you know what they need. And you need to see to it that they accept what you know they need. 
and don't stop until they are happy with what you choose for them. Thank you. You're not done when you finally get them and they have to take it and they're sitting there in that old pout face, poochy lip hanging out. You're not finished until they're happy with what you choose for them. Well, another thing PPP thinks that love doesn't inflict pain. Love does inflict pain. I thought about when I got my, I forget which vaccine it was for, uh, I forget, I was a little boy, we still lived in Virginia. We moved to Georgia when I was six years old. And I still remember going with my mother and getting that smallpox, I believe. Got that needle in there, and I think I still have that little thingy over here. It hurt. Well, but I've never had smallpox. So what happened? It's injected of the germ while in a ster sterile, sound medical condition. And it reaped what we needed. And so... An undisciplined life is a very unpleasant experience, then discipline should be like smallpox vaccine. A small amount of the real thing, it was a painful injected, administered under sound and loving family conditions. And it'll bring the results that we want. Doesn't God work on us by inflicting pain? How many of us have learned the deep, hard lessons in life while we're sitting out in the woodland smelling the roses? It's usually it's the hard things is where we learn love, teaching, discipline, training, work so closely. <clears throat> I think we're going to just kind of talk about all of them. Love without discipline is a fiasco. Harsh discipline without love will bring children who are emotionally unstable and unbalanced and give a wrong concept of God. Obedience training is probably the most important part in reaching our goal. Obedience training. Think about it. I've already emphasized that your goal is not to make them happy. Your goal is not to please them. And you may disagree with me, but when you have that little tyke, your number one goal is not to be their friend. Now, you're, that little child trained right will love you. But when we think of a friend level, you can't be that with a little child. You can have the love and the tenderness and all those things that go there. But you teach that child and you, you show love and obedience and, and um, training and discipline. When that child grows up, your children can be the closest friends that you have. They tell us children remember 10% of what they hear. They tell us they remember 50% of what they see, 70% of what they said, and they remember 90% of the things that they do. Now, Intellectual training will not do it. So we work on the 90% of what they do. I'm talking about obedience training. You tell them 
you give a command, they hear it, and then you have them do it, and that's when it starts clicking and they remember it. Yes, you tell them the 10, and, and they should see the 50% in you. And they'll start repeating what they've seen you do, and with loving discipline, you train to do those necessary things, the 90%. Controlling by screaming will not work, exclamation mark. It's like guiding the car with a horn. If you're trying to direct your children with, with screaming. Your children need to know that a quiet no is authoritative and it's what you mean. They need to know that yes means yes. Why would, why would if you yell yes to them or yell no to them, why would that be more powerful than if you say no, don't do that? And it's nobody else's responsibility but yours with your children. And I would caution against using threats. I think there's a time to say, do, do you want a spiking? Just a reminder. But don't start threatening all kinds of threats of whatever parents do. <clears throat> if you're trying to train by raising your voice, your child will learn quickly. You don't mean it the first time. Don't teach obedience by the counting technique. All right, I told you one, two, three. You know what you're teaching? Well, you can delay obedience a little while. I remember picking up Bible school students at home, and I'd have a van load of them. And by the end of the week, they were happy, and my nerves were just a little frazzled, and they were having a big time. We were going home, and just finally, the noise level was out the top. And so I said, children... Children didn't hear. So I raised my voice. Children still didn't hear. So I had to go turn it up loud. I won't demonstrate. Little Tracy, little boy sitting on the front seat, he evidently, he had heard. And he said, Mr. Sim, is that the last time? <laughs> he had been trained well. He could delay obedience. Imagine training an animal by yelling at it. What kind of training would that be? Yes, a quiet yes or a quiet no should mean just that. Another thing I emphasize is watch your tones. And you listen to yourself. You think about it. Listen to your tones when you talk to children. And I call it frustrated tones are very damaging. You know what it's like? I, I shouldn't demonstrate it. But you kind of get in a whiny tone to your children. I guess that's not done in Virginia, right? But listen to it. What does it do? One thing is hurtful to the child. And it doesn't clear the child of guilt. I've seen children already that get this talk. And their face gets long, and they just walk away. The guilt hasn't been taken care of. They may have needed a good punishment, maybe needed a good spanking, but the guilt was still there. And I'll tell you the third thing that will happen when you do that. Children learn quick to imitate, and they'll be coming back to you with those whiny tones. And the emotional level of your home will sink to a new low. So I'm just telling you, listen to yourself. 
the next week, two weeks. <clears throat> See how it goes. Well, obedience training dares not wait till you can reason with the child. Save yourself reasoning with your toddler. I've seen parents reason with toddlers. Well, you know, you know if you do this, then da-da-da, and this, and this, and this, and this. Just like if I reason long enough with that little, little tyke, it'll be just like this light switch, boop, and the lights come on. Do you know that there's two parts to our brain, they say, or well, the, one, the one part which controls the automatic things in our body like breathing and heart rate and I don't know what all else, but when the child is born, that is fully developed. The frontal lobe where reasoning and judgment comes from is not fully developed until they're in their low 20s. I'm, I'm sorry, young folks, I didn't write that. I didn't study the brain, but that's what they tell us. And, you know, it kind of clicked with me. I, no wonder then rental, car rental companies, they say, are you 25? <laughs> Is that why maybe teenagers do daring things that once they're 25, 30 years old, they think that was pretty crazy. I, know, I knew a young man that spun around in the cemetery one time years ago. He would never do that in his right mind now when he's an older man. So when you try to reason, that part in a child, the reasoning part, it just doesn't work. And so you can talk until you're blue in the face and it, it won't click. <clears throat> but there are things that you can do to teach. And pain is what brings a child to obedience on these little things. And of course, love is hooked to it, remember? And I think about our wood stove. We have, we have an old Fisher stove in our house. Been there since 1977. It's nothing pretty, really. It's just, I think it's three-eighths steel, no pretty jacket around it. We have had only a few people and children get burned on it, but we haven't had any that got burned twice. Wonder why. That illustrates my point. <clears throat> so... I encourage you, when that little, I don't know, 10-month-old, 12-month-old, when they start going to the coffee table and yanking everything else off, and when they maybe books that they're not supposed to have, Elizabeth Elliot says that there are about four things you should do, and it might take you all morning, mothers, but she says, make eye contact with the child, you speak the child's name, and you say quietly, no. And when they do it, then discipline, some kind of a little pain, something that that child knows this isn't, and go through that again. And those children can learn that that's off, but so often we child-proof the house instead of house-proofing the child, right? So remember those eye contact, speak the name, and do that every time and that child goes back. Eye contact, speak the child, say no, and administer a little pain to go along with it. That's obedience training. I encourage you to have sitting lessons, sessions with small children. 
teaching them they can be quiet. And I've heard a lot of mothers, especially in, when we have communion council service, and they say that they just hardly have time to read their Bible like they like. And I'm suggesting that in the morning after the children are to school, and boy, and you might say this is some fairyland preacher, but just get, get your children together, say, we're going to have church. Everybody's sitting so nicely here. The children are seated. Just They're just, you know, if you're going to hold one and they're going to sleep, that's fine. But you're going to have church. And maybe 10 minutes, not too long, but this is your lesson. If you have that, and then when we come to church, I say this is the test. And they're, if they fail the test, well, what do we do? School, we, got, we have school teachers here. If you fail a test, you're like, we got to have some more lessons. We don't need to panic about it. Children will be children. And I'll tell you one other thing while we're here. If children are hollering and screaming when you're sitting here in church and you stand up and they quieten down, you've got some work to do. They need to learn it would be more pleasant to sit in here than to go out there. You get the point? Okay. I want to talk a little bit about Oh, another thing is the distraction method. That's the PPP thing, distraction method. And we've had a young girl that came to our home, lived with us for over a year. <clears throat> she went away for a couple of years, went away from God. And all at once one day she showed up and she had a little, I don't know, she was two years old, the little girl about two. And it kept her, that mother busy every waking moment of that little girl to try to find out what she wanted and if she had if she had the nicest little dish that your great grandmother had the most precious thing that you had if she had that you had to figure out something that she would want more than that because you couldn't just take it from her this is that distraction method what a chaos i mean it just wrecks the whole home it just almost drove us crazy. And I guess if that's the way children had to be raised, I wouldn't want more than one of them either. All right. I want to talk a little bit about spankings. And I have my parents to thank for this because they, it was by example that we picked up from them. Don't wait until the flashpoint. Don't wait until the flashpoint. See, that's what the world thinks when we say discipline and corporal punishment. They're thinking that it's just you, you finally you get mad. You can't handle it anymore. So somehow you just beat the child. That's not what we're talking about at all. The child has done wrong. The child needs discipline. The child needs correction. And so you take it when you're, you take the child when you're in a frame of mind to tell the child, to talk to the child, and make sure they know the crime. And simple little questions you can ask, and I know I'm speaking mainly to, about young children, but even up to wherever they get to that age where they don't need spankings anymore. I mean, I say basically should be done in private. Even in your home, if you have other children, and especially when the child is old enough to put
put the dots together, know that everybody else is around. It should be done in private. And you can go to the bedroom. A couple simple little questions. You can just ask the child, um, what did I tell you to do? They'll tell you. Well, what did you do? And they'll tell you. Well, do you know why I'm going to spank you? Yeah, they will. And I've asked them already, but what do you think I should do? You disobeyed. They'll usually be honest enough to tell you you need to spike, and by that time they're about to cry already. And then administer it soundly. Now, these verses that we read, don't, they don't sound like um, a little bit of fanfare. And I would say here, well, let me finish. Well, no, I'm going to go ahead with that thought right here. <laughs> when you spank them, it has to be enough that if you don't like the term breaks the wheel, it bends the wheel. It changes the wheel to where they, is, they submit and they're ready to sit. I think it's good. What I like to do was sit. I usually go to the bedroom and sit them on my lap after it's done. A good heart spanking. Let them cry a little bit. And you can tell if it's still a mad yell out the top, you are not finished. And when you, when you spank them and you get through to them and they sit there and they cuddle up to you and they cry and after a while you say, okay, now that's enough now. And you give them that big squeeze and you tell them, I love you. And most every time they'll reach up around and hug you and say, I love you too. And you know that's Bible to do that? Job, I think it's the fifth chapter, says when God wounds, he binds us back up. That's God's way. When, when you threw hard things in life and things that were just hard discipline, don't we feel God's arms around us to pull us back together? And we learn what he wants us to learn. <clears throat> the child, oh, what I wanted to say too. It's a different day now than it was back when we had babies we use cloth diapers and um, I don't think it was as hard to get through as it is now with the uh, disposable pampers we call them and then if you have a good heavy set of jeans over them I'm just being painfully practical here you can give nice little swats and that little shorty is still hollering and screaming as loud as he was and it's not that he's still mad. And you haven't gotten through. So whatever you have, you need to have an instrument of discipline that causes pain without injury. And you need to make sure that you've gotten through. And then bind that child back up. You cuddle them a little while. And they say, go wash your face. It's over. The guilt is gone. And they go play again. And everything is okay. And never mention it again. It's done. Oh, I have mentioned here about parents keeping your emotions under control. Don't discipline when you're angry. We knew our parents wouldn't. I had a brother one time. It's not this one, but it was another one who was, was in line to get a spanking. He knew it. He said, Mom... Are you sure you're not angry? <laughs> but she wasn't. <laughs> uh, 
If, you're, if a child doesn't come under the authority of an adult, it will head down a long, dark path. And so I tell you, I want to suggest to you parents that it's good for you to do a test. If your two-year-old doesn't respond promptly to a normal tone, remember normal tone, come, you have work to do. You're not in a crisis, but you have work to do. If your child at any age tells you no when you've just given a command in a normal tone, you are at a crisis. How will it work out if that child gets up to about 15, 16, 17 and tells you that same no? How will it work out? Your obedience to God requires that every time you give your child a reasonable command in a normal voice that you see to it that it gets done. I see somebody shaking their head. That your obedience to God requires that every time you give a child a reasonable command in a normal tone, you see to it that it's carried through. And you know what? If you're consistent with it, you will relieve yourself and you will make a much happier child, a much happier family if they know that dad loves them. And when he says no, that's what he means. A much happier family. Listen, <laughs> don't run me off yet, but you're not making little Christians. You're just teaching them obedience to authority. And that will make it easier to submit to God when the time comes. Because you've taught them to yield and submit to authority that's over them and to keep their conscience clean. You've taught them that when the conscience is defiled, then they get it taken care of. The guilt is gone and I'm free inside. And so when they feel God talking to them and they're ready to take care of that guilt, and so they give it to God and they're clear again. It makes it, I think it makes it much easier for children if they've learned it where they should have in the first place. And if they've learned to say no to your authority, it will be much easier to say no to God's authority. And then it, it, you'll see it go right on up. No to the school authority. No to the church authority. No to the state authority. It's just the way it works. I remind you parents that our attitudes are usually picked up and exposed and magnified by our children. Attitudes about authority. Maybe it's seat belts. Maybe it's car seats, maybe it's speed limits, maybe it's church leaders, maybe it's school, government. Our attitudes are usually picked up, exposed, and, and magnified. <clears throat> and I want you to remember, you can't lead where you're not walking. You can't lead your children where you're not walking. And I'm going to wait for that one. A little more on that one tonight. Another thing I would say about making your home a pleasant place, training, teaching um, your children, make bedtime a pleasant time. Make bedtime a pleasant time. I know a dad that 
told me he he likes to play a story about after, uh, or maybe read him a story or um, when they put him to bed and he'll go into the room with, the one room with a couple of them tonight and the next night he'll go to another one and have the, maybe have the, um, the story playing where they can all listen to it and just spend a little time with the children. Can you imagine how much better that child will be equipped they can give their dad and mom a good night kiss and a hug and drift off into a peaceful sleep. I encourage you parents to look your children in the eyes. This is one that bothers me. <clears throat> I know of people from years ago that were sinned against as children, little children, and they grew up and they had tremendous hurts in their lives and tremendous bad attitudes about mom and dad because mom and dad didn't protect them and mom and dad said, we didn't even know it happened. And I'm wondering, do you ever, did you ever notice how you can see into the, almost into the soul of a person and in a child you can see in their eyes if it's, everything is clear? You look in the eyes of a child and we go to, when we were going to Honduras regularly, I, I could see a lot of those eyes in those children back up and they look dark and clouded and I know the stories that the children told us coming into the home and it, it just, it tears me up. And parents, it's up to you to protect your children. And I'm, now I'm back around to looking them in the eyes. Eat supper together, sit at the table and look your children in the eyes. Don't be preoccupied with what you did in the news and where you've got to go. And I can't imagine somebody sinning against a little child this big and not being able to see plum distress in those eyes. And so I'm bringing it back. This is, I believe this is one of, the, one of the biggest ways that you can be a protector of your children. Needs teaching too, but that's for another time. Don't talk down to children. Don't, don't be talking down about you always are doing this and you're never and you're da, 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 all that kind of stuff. It just, it just tears up the relationship. It breaks respect. It loses the heart very quickly. And I tell you before, when you lose it, somebody else will pick it up. When you look children in the eyes, it's easy to tell if all is well, and it's binding, and it's a preparation for a good day tomorrow. What else? I'll probably get finished and think of something else that I, that I wanted to say and I missed it. Have hearts for your children. Love your children. Bind them up. Draw them close to you. It's like that arrow. It's pulled back. And you turn it loose. So soon, they'll be gone. While you have the opportunity, draw your children close. Ask God to help you. And may God bless you in, uh, in your home. Homes, you... In, a, in the place you are with little children around you, um, it can be the most blessed time. And what, what a witness it is to have a godly home 
in the society that we're living in. May God bless you and give you much wisdom, strength for everything you need.